Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and I'm the host of My Time Capsule, in which I ask various guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they love, but they also pick one thing they rather regret, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is Danny Robbins. Danny is an award-winning British writer, broadcaster and journalist. He created the Battersea Poltergeist, a podcast series for the BBC that combined drama and documentary to tell a real-life ghost story, starring Toby Jones and Daphne Keane. It became a global phenomenon, the number one drama podcast across the whole world, with more than four million downloads, sparking a bidding war for the TV rights. Danny is now adapting it with Hollywood producers Bloomhouse. The series won the Gold Award for the Best Serialized Podcast at the New York Festival's Radio Awards. His latest drama, The Witch Farm, starring Joseph Fiennes and Alexandra Roach, is available on the BBC now, and it's bloody brilliant. Danny's also got a BBC podcast series called Uncanny, which tells individual stories of paranormal encounters from ghosts to UFOs, and is another multi-million download hit. And then there's Danny's play, 222, a ghost story, a contemporary set modern supernatural thriller, which originally starred Lily Allen and opened in the West End in August 2021, playing to full houses and rave reviews. It's still running in the West End, so get along and see it if you can. Danny has created and written various shows for TV and radio, including the BAFTA-nominated hit series Young Dracula for BBC One and Rudy's Rare Records, starring Lenny Henry. You might also want to listen to The Cold Swedish Winter. All of them are available somewhere on the BBC. He's also created the Haunted podcast series for Panoply, which explores real-life ghost stories. And there's more. Danny has recently written and helped to create a thrilling new immersive experience, The Gunpowder Plot, featuring the Harry Potter star Tom Felton, which is a fully immersive virtual reality experience in the vaults that sit beneath the infamous Tower Hill site where much of the prelude to The Gunpowder Plot took place before Guy Fawkes' torture and eventual death. <laughs> Something for the whole family there. Anyway, if that all sounds a bit scary, that's why we put this episode out on Halloween. You see, there is some thought behind the chaos. However, I can promise you there is nothing frightening about the lovely Danny Robbins, as I'm sure you'll discover now. Have fun. Well, of course, the first question I'm going to ask Danny is, um, what the hell is your number 11 hit? <laughs> that's, that's the first question? Um, that's the most important question. Yeah, I did have a number 11 hit in the charts in the days when that still counted for something as well, actually. Mm. Um and um, so when I was really pretty young, I, uh, I, was, I was still at university and we um, 
managed to get a few sketches on a Channel 4 sketch show. And then one day, my friend Dan Tetzel, who you also know, mm. was walking through a branch of HMV. And he heard this voice playing on this track. It was this kind of blistering garage track. And he heard this voice. And for a while, he was going like, what? Who's that voice? Like, is it a quote from a film? And he went, hang on, that's the sketch we wrote. <laughs> and somebody, somebody had sampled this sketch that we'd written. It was a thing we'd done with Marcus Brickstock, and it was Marcus's voice. And we sort of went, we need to find out about this. This isn't right. And we, we got our agents to dig into it. And this was right at the beginning of our career. And basically, this DJ had sampled his mate's answer phone. His mate had, had put this clip from the sketch on his answer phone. And then his, <laughs> the DJ had sampled it. So the DJ had no idea where it came from. And he'd done this track. And he was on top of the pops, dancing around in fancy costumes. And, and the song was called... Um, I don't smoke. And, and the quote went, do you smoke? And I went, no, I, I don't smoke the reefer. And then it kind of goes into this right, big yeah. garage track. Some people will know it. It got quite big. It was on like all these garage compilations. And basically, he had to pay us royalties. And, and we, we actually had oh, to sign. Oh, my word. We signed a publishing contract with Warner Chapel Music. And he was really <laughs> cross, the DJ, because you can imagine, you probably don't make that much money out of a... A no. garage one-hit wonder anyway. And he was trying to claim that, that there were a few like oo-oos and ah-ahs that he'd stuck in there as well. And so he was trying to claim that every oo-oo and ah-ah was part of the lyrics. And sort of, even though <laughs> ahs was the only words in the song, he was trying to claim that we were just a percentage of it. So we basically had this kind of tussle over this ludicrous, <laughs> ridiculous uh, sample. <laughs> and yeah, and that's that's the, the extent of my music career, basically. That, that, and, that and also um, coming second in the UK Air Guitar Championships, my other... Oh, yeah, second, yeah. Danny. What happened? Well, I, I mean, we were robbed is the short answer. Um, <laughs> you know, I think there was some nefarious chicanery going on. But we, we had a, an air guitar band called Satan's Underpants, and we did it to uh, fight for your right to party by the Beastie Boys. And it was in um, the Camden Palace nightclub, and it was properly rock and roll. We were right, wow. really dressed up to the nines with, like, tight leopard skin trousers and leather and you know big hair like big wigs hair I mean we looked amazing and I think we somebody paid for like a, a replica Knight Rider car to drive us to the venue and it wow. was probably the most rock and roll moment in my life and I still look back at those photos and, and, and mourn the passing of those days but um, for me Mike this is all about a deep tragedy that lies within me that has mm -hmm. probably powered me on to everything I've ever done since, which is that I always wanted to be a pop singer and I am utterly, utterly unmusical. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm so bad at music that it kind of almost becomes an art form in itself. Like, you know, when you have to clap along with a, a musical or a pantomime. And, I mean, I've, I've been to see you in pantomime, so I, I've been in this situation watching you, but I cannot clap. I can't clap in time. And so I have to pretend, I have to air clap. I, I literally, in the way that people mime singing, I mime clapping because that's how arrhythmic I am. I wish I'd known that. I'd I really wish I'd known that. I would have got you up. I know, I'd love to be musical. It's the tragedy of my life. I, I, I'm a kind of suppressed um, rock and roll star and, and, I've, and I've had to put all my energies into other things, you know, like um, initially into comedy and then now into my ghostly podcast and so on. But I, I think somewhere in my head, I'm still on stage at Wembley. Yes. <laughs> Frustrated. <laughs> so, I mean, someone once said to me that, that everybody can sing and you just have to kind of tune into the bit of singing that you can do. But I haven't found that yet. See, are you tone deaf, though? Well, I mean, I feel like I am. I, I mean, I, I cannot hear, like, when people sing a note to me and, and ask me to sing it back, I, I just, I can't hear it. I can't in any way grasp and hold on to that thing. It's elusive. It's intangible to me. But um, mm. it's an interesting one, isn't it? And, and I... I think also I had this experience when I was a kid where I, I used to go for, you know, electronic keyboard lessons, you know, with um, the electronic piano. And and, um, and I remember my teacher telling my mum to stop sending me because it was a waste of money. And I think that was really <sighs> hurtful, I think. And, and I think that it sort of crushed my sense of myself as a musical person. And now I see in my kids, actually, that they are very musical and my wife is very musical. And, and I, I take great pleasure in watching my children 
do note perfect renditions of the Imperial March from Star Wars uh, <laughs> in, incessantly around the house. But I mean, certainly, I mean, both of them, but my younger son particularly is an amazing mimic. And he's just, you know, he, he hears a theme tune on TV, then re- reproduces it instantly, perfectly. So I don't know, it's possible that it was driven out of you. You know what yeah. I mean? That actually you only need to lose confidence in yourself at an early stage and it, you never get it back. It's very true, actually. And I think, you know, it's a good reminder of. Um, the, the need for encouragement and how we can do a lot more to encourage our children by being positive than by being negative and telling them about their mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm a great believer in the shit sandwich. Um, do, 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 you, do you have this, you know, this about say something nice, say the bad thing, then say something nice. Yeah. Although there's another version of that, which is <laughs> okay, the, more, the more bread you have, the less shit you have to eat. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's another version, of course, which if you Google will, will kind of uh, shock and disturb. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but no, I'm a great believer in that. And, I, and, and actually, you know, I spend my life having to take notes from people on things I do, scripts mainly. Mm. And, and I'm always amazed how many people forget that. And I'm amazed how many people just take it for granted that I will think that the thing is positive and that I won't mind getting loads of negative thoughts on it. Because, yes. you know, that's fine. He can deal with that. You know, And actually, I would say to anybody listening out there who's a producer or any anything where you have to kind of give people criticism, then never forget that it's amazing to tell them the good bits about it as mm-hmm. well. We need to hear that. And however established you are, you need to hear the positivity because you spent so much time pouring your heart and soul into this thing and you just need a little bit of reassurance that that wasn't a, a crazy waste of time. I've heard several producers describe the way they do things as that. These are good producers who actually said, what I do is I say, this is good, this is good, this, that doesn't really work, but that's great. And you drop it in the middle there and then it gets accepted more easily. The other definition of a good producer that um, I remember seeing Sam Bain talk about, you know, Sam Bain, the, the writer mm, of the writer, Peep, yeah. Peep Show, amongst other things. So he said, he was asked what makes a good producer and he said, replying to emails. And, <laughs> and it might sound like really simple, but actually it's so important as well, like replying to people. And I, I just think... In general, that's quite a good thing, replying to people. I try and do it on social media. Like when people say nice things to me, I try and reply as much as is humanly possible. I think there's Mm -hmm. something great about, you know, we live in an age where we are saturated with communication. We're bombarded by stuff all the time. And and when people don't reply, it can feel quite a lonely place. And actually, a a reply counts for a lot, I think. And, And certainly when you're writing away on a script and going a bit mad, and then you post off to somebody, <laughs> particularly in those early days when you're trying to impress somebody and you're kind of like, this is the script I've been working on. Do you like me? Will you want to commission something? You know, just a reply is incredible. Just to say, like, you know, I will read this. And, um, and actually, you know, I'm working with Jason Blum at the moment from Blumhouse, you know, the great mm-hmm. Hollywood horror producer. And someone told me that he's got this thing within his office where he says to everyone who comes to work for him, you know, you, when you get a script you reply pretty much immediately and you say to the person, I'm going to read this at four o'clock on Sunday. And um, and if you don't do it, then you say, sorry, I really wasn't able to do that, but this is when I'm going to read it. You tell them, you keep them informed. And and, you, and, and it's amazing. Like, you know, like mostly you're sending things off into the ether and, you know, like you, you might hear in months, you might never hear. And mm. actors doing their self-tapes are always talking about this. You know, you do these self-tapes, mm-hmm. you send them off, no one ever replies. You know? But to, to do that thing, to just to say like, you know, like this is received, I'm going to read it, you know, and I'll give you feedback and y- you know where you're at. And, and yeah. you know, that's, that's a, you know, that, that shows class, I think. Uh, well, it's sort of class, but actually you would think it was quite a normal human thing to do. That in fact, if somebody sends you something and you receive it, you'd say, I got it. Um, I'm going to look at it in a minute. I'll tell you what I think when I've had a look at it. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's hard. I mean, I think the more that you, um, the more successful you get, the more people send you things. And so if you're the head of a channel, then obviously you're getting loads and loads of scripts. You know, if if you're Mm -hmm. like, I mean, you know, even now, like having had the success with the play, I get a lot of people contacting me wanting to either sort of write things about the play or send me their own plays. And, you know, it, it is impossible to respond to everything in the way you would like you can't read everything that everybody sends you but I guess you know boiling it down like you know but you can reply you can try and reply in some way yes it says particularly the world that everybody describes as really horrible which is sort of like the twitter world and people are constantly saying it's a 
the bane of their life and it's awful, it's a cesspit. I don't have that experience with it at all. I find it a really pleasant place. Almost everybody that I ever converse with, and I converse with nearly everybody who gets in touch with me, I don't write a tome, but I will say thanks or cheers and things like that. It's very easy and very quick. I do it on the move almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I, I agree. And I think it counts for a hell of a lot. You know, I think it's um, it's it's nice. I mean, you know, Twitter particularly, but all social media is about people digging their trenches and, and you know, h- hating each other and shouting mm. at each other a lot of the time. But actually, I mean, you know, like you say, I mean, through your work and your podcast and, and through the stuff I've been doing, you, you can create these bubbles of positivity yeah. where people converse nicely. And I think now more than ever, people respond incredibly well to that. So actually, that sort of thing is, it feeds itself. You know, you sort of, you know, mm-hmm. pay it forward, you spread the love. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So we're going to talk about five things from your life you want to put into a time capsule. I know. I found this really hard. I found it hard because... Um, I don't think I'm a big object person. I, I, I'm, I'm not particularly materialistic, I would say. Mm. And um, so I really racked my brains. And then I read a line in the blurb you sent me about how to make decisions. And it said, like, it could be a concept or a memory or a smell. So yeah. I, I kind of some of my thoughts lean more in that direction, I think. Great. Shall I hit you with number one? Yeah, great. Okay. So number one for the time capsule is that first sip of the right drink (laughs) and this is something that somebody mentioned to me a while back they said there's no more magical feeling than that first sip of the right drink and it's so true like it's pretty much the definition of pleasure I would say and it can be almost anything in different situations to different people it could be that first sip of champagne on your wedding day after all that planning (laughs) it could be the first sip of coffee in the morning I mean coffee never tastes better than that first sip. It could be that cold beer in an airport on your way to the holidays. I mean, it could be the thing that reminds you of home. I mean, sometimes I have a sip of Newcastle brown ale and I'm reminded of Newcastle where I grew up. And also that, you know, that first sip of water when you've just been working out, whatever. I mean, I think for me, this is about the need to find moments of pleasure within the relentlessness of daily life. And I feel like, you know, particularly now I sort of find myself torn between the uh, demands of family and the demands of work. And I feel like a lot of the time I'm kind of exhausting myself, working so hard relentlessly till my body hurts and so on. And then actually you have those little moments where you just get that restorative oasis of, of pleasure within your day from, <laughs> you know, your, your sip of coffee in the morning or your sip of beer at night or whatever. But, you know, it's interesting. I, I threw this out on Twitter before coming here and... Um, and asked people what theirs would be. And there were some great answers coming back. Like one woman said to me, the first sip of tea after I gave birth. Oh, which, my word. You know, felt profound and yeah, that br- really brilliant. Is profound, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, what a way to remember that moment, restoring yourself in that way. I thought that was great. And, you know, somebody else said to me, like, you know, the first sip of a non-alcoholic beer, you know, like again, which sort of feels like that, you know, potentially kind of carries, you know, maybe reasons behind it why that's so important. Mm-hmm. But um, somebody else said to me, Coke Zero after going out for a walk. And I was like, no, I'm not having that. No. <laughs> Coke Zero, no. that's horrible. But um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, you are wrong. But, um, uh, but and you, know, you jump straight into Twitter with, get out of my yeah, life. Yeah, I hate you. But um, no, it's interesting. And, and I, I, I didn't drink coffee at all. I'd never drunk coffee until I had my second son. Max. And my first son, Leo, is is a very calm child. He's incredibly well behaved. A thinker, I, I think. And Max is a force of nature. He's loud. He's in your face. <laughs> Ever since he was a baby, he was like full on. Like, I remember going to Sainsbury's with him and the woman uh, at Sainsbury's said, there's something wrong with your child. He shouldn't be making that noise. And I was like, no, no, trust me. This, this, is, this is normal. <laughs> this is fine. He's just a bit hungry. But, um, but I mean, he's an amazing, <laughs> beautiful, lovely, funny boy. But, he, I mean, he is, you know, he is absolutely um, a live wire. And, and, you know, and it will stand him in amazing stead. It's, it's great. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I, I, I'd never felt tireder in my life than when <laughs> we had our second child. And I was like hmm, this thing, coffee, that people talk of, this, 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 uh, maybe I should get on this. This could be interesting. <laughs> and um, my gateway drug was Barocca Boost, which is a, a caffeinated <laughs> yeah. version of Barocca. So I had that, and I was like, you know, that sort of broke the seal, if you like. And then I tried coffee, and I, I started off on iced coffees because I, I wasn't that much of a hot drink drinker. Mm. But then I've kind of worked up, and now I have a, 
a coffee in the morning and um and I kind of get it you know but at the same time I have this kind of love hate affair I like I'll have coffee for a few months then sort of slightly come a cropper and start to feel a bit edgy and anxious and it doesn't kind of quite sit right and then yeah. I have a bit of a clean period when I'm off the coffee but then I I come back you know I'm a bit like sort of Nick Cotton and EastEnders but with coffee you know um, and uh, so anyway but there, there you go that's a very long-winded way of saying that that sometimes that first sip of the right drink transcends the moment and becomes a kind of a spiritual oasis of pleasure it, it does so doesn't it because we we look forward to recreating it I think that's one of the reasons why you'll have that anticipation of going to the pub or you'll have that anticipation when you're going on holiday. I mean, you're talking about drinking at the airport, but um, getting to the place, if you know it, and thinking, I'm going to go to that bar, I'm going to have that beer. And you, you're going back. It's, it's got a reference to things you've done before, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, like, tastes and smells uh, can be deeply linked to nostalgia, can't they? And they can really transport mm. us back to a moment in our lives. But I think it's also an interesting lesson for life that it doesn't get better after that first sip. You know, the first sip is always the best. And it's kind of downhill from there. And I have noticed recently um, that the second coffee does not taste as good. And a, a friend of mine who was over at the weekend said this. He said that if you notice how the second coffee doesn't taste as good and it doesn't give you the hit. And I was like, yeah, no, really? Why is that? You know, what is the, mm. the science behind that? But um, you get that initial high and then you, you try and chase it and you can't quite reach it again. And I guess, is that the nature of life? I mean, you know, it, it's the first time you experience things are the most exciting. I mean, I, I had this recently. I was lucky enough to fly business class to the States. Somebody paid for me to fly business class over there. And, and I felt like, you know, that there isn't a lot that impresses you in life these days. You know, we're quite <laughs> jaded. We, you know, like, you know, you can have whatever you want, music on tap, TV on tap. You know, we, we have a lot of stuff in our lives, you know, but I, I, I went into the business lounge. I was like, holy crap, this is good, you know. And I was like calling my wife at home going like, I'm just taking some free porridge and I've got some pastries here. And she was like, yeah, I'm at home with the kids, trying to get them ready for school. <laughs> Stop rubbing this in. And yep. uh, I hate you. And, and you know, but I was loving the lounge and then charging my phone, sitting in a comfy chair and going, I don't have to rush to the gate. Then I got on the plane. I was like, this is like a whole room almost to myself. This is incredible. <laughs> and they've got socks and slippers and toothbrushes wow. and all sorts. It was amazing. And that's and, just business. I know, I know, you know. I mean, Imagine uh, first. You know, I think there was a swimming pool. and No, um, but... Um, uh, <laughs> But, you know, it was great and it, it blew me away. But then I flew back business class and I was like, oh, I'm so over this. You know? <laughs> this is, <laughs> oh, it's only business class again. But, um, no, I mean, it, it's, you know, it, the first time you experience something is amazing. And, and, you know, people talk about that in so many different ways, don't, don't they, in, in terms of, you know, emotions and um, all the sort of sensory experiences of our lives. You know, is it, mm. is it you know, the, in, the highest intensity is that, is that first time probably. Yeah. Perhaps it's a lesson you could teach the people who smoke, because I remember smoking very well, but what I remember is that first cigarette of the day. The rest of them you did automatically. They didn't really have any effect at all. They were yeah. pointless. And, and clearly, I guess, the, the hit is about the withdrawal. It's about the absence of it. You know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. So if you've not smoked overnight, that hmm. first hit gives you what you need. And actually, somebody told me that the reason that you get headaches if you stop drinking coffee it's because caffeine inhibits the flow of blood to the brain and, and that actually right. when you're getting the headaches, it's because all the blood is flowing up there. Um, <laughs> so we live unhealthy lives. We, we are all addicts now, aren't we? And I think about this with phones particularly. We're talking about do we get my eldest son a phone now because he's getting mm. to a certain age and I, I hate that idea, obviously. But um, My grandchildren have got better iPhones than I have. Yeah, but we're, we're all addicted. We, you know, I, I kind of think that this is the thing now. Like when, when you... Um, you know, hear stories of addiction now. It's very easy to empathise because we are all addicts. We we know that we're addicted to these mm -hmm. phones. And the reason that children want them is because they see them as objects of power. They see that, you know, we can, you know, book a taxi, book a restaurant, book the cinema, whatever, with our phones. But also they see that at times this object is more important than them. You know, there's points where we say, no, no, wait, I need to look at my phone, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you ignore them. And, um, you know, from a very, very early age, kids are getting a very clear message that this object is the most important thing in their parents' lives, which is horrible. Horrible. Very good point. Horrible. Also, children spend their whole time saying why, 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 why. They say it over and over again. And 
if they discover that you then go, well, hang on a second, I'll Google it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they can bypass you. Well, you know, I, I feel like the, the whole, that has taken the magic out of a lot of things. Like now, you know, you, you know, my kids are always asking me to look up. My kids are quite specific on on their interests. <laughs> they ask me to look up things like Lancaster bombers and sort of you know the the, the boats that took soldiers to D Day and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you can have all knowledge whenever you want it. So that there's less of that the mystery of the hunt. You know, I, I mean. You don't have that thing of needing to find the book in the library and discover that particular page. Or um, when I first started out making documentaries, I used to have to go for the phone book and call people up and one person would lead me to another and you'd have this incredible mm. detective hunt. Um, this leads me effortlessly onto my second object. Fantastic. If that's okay. Which, which is all about this shift to an era of everything being accessible at all times. And the object that I am choosing for my second object is the Look Sharp album by Roxette. And, <laughs> and I'll tell you why I'm choosing this, because, I mean, I could have chosen one of many different records, really, but um, I, I just have a very clear memory of getting this as a, as a really, really young kid, mm. getting this, the vinyl, and we had to go to the record shop, we bought the vinyl, brought it home, I pulled out the lyric sheet, which you know used to get in in records, listen to it again and again and again, and the whole album, not just individual songs, the whole A side, the whole you know you flip it over. I mean, some people won't even understand this concept because you know <laughs> you had to turn the record over, listen to the other side, and I'd look at the lyrics as I listened to it, learn all the words. You know, you'd, some of the songs you weren't that into at the beginning, but then because you listened to them again and again and again, you got into them, you memorized the entire album, and. For me, this this object just speaks to that nostalgia for an age before you could have everything, and and I do worry about my kids and all of us now. It's very hard to value anything when you have everything, and you know if you have access to all music, then music ceases to be as important as it was. I think when when you had like one record to listen to, it was like this. Holy Grail, this treasure, almost like a religious text that you would memorise and, you know, it became this thing that you corresponded with, you had this relationship with. And I don't know, we just dip our toe in now, don't we? We're like, you know, it's like dating, you know, like you go on Tinder and you just go through, I mean, I, I don't, obviously, just in case my <laughs> wife is listening. Don't you? I do, but, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> but, you know, you know, pe- people, when they're, they're dating, you know, you just, you know, you swipe right, you're just going through loads and loads of things. So, so you're not really committing to anyone. And people I know who are involved in that kind of dating at the moment, they speak to me about the kind of, you know, how it's kind of brutal and kind of horrible. And you go on these dates and everybody's always sizing you up and looking at you, but the grass is always greener somewhere else. And nobody really commits, you know, because there's always mm. somebody better out there. You know, that's the nature of the internet. That's why we become addicts, because there's always something more interesting, always something better out there. You never hit a point where enough is enough. And so, uh, th- you know, this object for me represents that nostalgia. I would love to go back to an age where <laughs> we still met our friends by ringing them up and arranging a time and then going and sitting, in my case, in the in the centre of Newcastle uh, at mm-hmm. um, Grey's Monument and waiting an hour because they were late, but you knew they'd come eventually, you know, and not having that moment where someone sends you a text and says, oh, by the way, sorry, I'm, you know, going to be an hour late and I'm only telling you two minutes before we're going to meet and all that sort of thing. But, um, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I just, I, I feel a, a deep nostalgia for that. And I, this makes me sound like some sort of grumpy old man or something like that, but... Um, I would love to, again, value things because they were part of a small collection of precious objects, like, for instance, your time capsule things. I think it's a really nice thing, actually, to think about the few, about what would you do if you shrank your life. And actually, people talk about, you know, I I remember hearing an interview with somebody who lost all of her possessions in a house fire. And the interviewer said, you know, this must have been horrendous for you. And she went, actually, it was the opposite. It was quite a release in many ways to uh-huh. to, to find yeah. that I could get rid of all these things that didn't really mean that much to me, that had been cluttering my house up for years. And um, it, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? What would you shrink your life to if it was just the essentials? And that's the nostalgia that I carry around with me at the moment. I think it's particularly acute because I look at my kids moving into an era where they will very soon have phones and be exposed Mm. to all that comes with that, you know, and and they're shifting from that thing where, you know, their collection of Lego is, you know, their most precious thing to a point where suddenly it will be 
the wild, the dangerous kind of bad lands of the internet. Yes. On to the next thing on YouTube. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. I mean, I, you know, I think we, we sort of have to be careful what we say, don't we? Because I think actually, you know, p- people, younger people do experience things in a different way to us. And I know that there is mm. a huge amount of creativity out there with TikTok and things like that in terms of people generating lots of really inventive, really funny short form content. But they, we have changed the way we respond to things and our attention spans have changed. And it's interesting if you watch films from the past, and I've had this with two films recently, I've had this with Home Alone and 101 Dalmatians, the original animated 101 Dalmatians, mm-hmm. watching it with the kids. And it felt so slow. It was like, it takes yeah. ages. You know, like Home Alone, you're like, just get to the funny stuff. It's taking a long time. <laughs> but, you know, films from the past move at a slower pace. We're used to things being really fast-paced and bombarding us now. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I love about a podcast and about podcasting is that it doesn't conform to that it doesn't behave like that however long your podcast is half an hour an hour or whatever it captures you because you cannot do anything else whilst you're listening to a podcast I think at least I mean people will prove me wrong here I mean I mean you can obviously jog or walk or you know Mm. whatever you can move but you know I, I don't think you can scroll on your phone and listen to a podcast I don't think you can do that kind of concentration simultaneously so it sort of forces you to put the phone down and listen to something and I think that that is why people respond to it so well as well I think more and more people are enjoying you know being forced to step out of the constant digital buzz for a while and and just staying with one thing yeah I yeah and I I, you know I think it's great and I think with a podcast you can create this amazing you know you are literally in people's ears you're in people's heads and, you know, I make a lot of spooky, scary podcasts. And obviously that's a genre that brilliantly suits that thing of getting inside somebody's head. You can do really powerful things with that. But I, I, mm. I relish, I love that fact that when I'm speaking on a podcast, I feel like I have people's undivided attention. Sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And you do treasure those albums from those times. And I wonder how much people will treasure particular music rather than an entire genre now because you know, for me I went on a holiday to Italy once and we realised that only one person had brought a record and it was Elton John's greatest hits and so we had to listen to that for the whole thing so I, I could obviously <laughs> never listen again <laughs> they, they brought a record on holiday they brought one record with them why wow, okay. God knows that's why in their impressive. suitcase that's very impressive yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well we will put that Roxette album in to represent that moment of sitting there concentrating and learning the whole thing gorgeous be careful yeah. with it though it's very easy to break a record if you're putting it in a tank a bubble wrap it <laughs> <laughs> that's two then Danny what's the third thing There you are. I told you Danny wasn't frightening. Sadly, we do have to leave this chat for a moment so we can send some enticing adverts your way. Get ready to touch and go. See you soon. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to part two of my time capsule and the rest of the things that the writer and podcaster Danny Robbins would like to put in his time capsule. So number three, now this is a big one. You're going to need a, a big 
time capsule for this. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's a Lego Star Wars Death Star. Oh, right. And um, it's there because it became very symbolic for my family during lockdown. So, you know, lockdown was this bizarre, strange and unsettling time, wasn't it, where all of us were forced to spend more time with our families and anybody in the history of human existence that ever had to do. Mm. And my kids were three and a half years apart from each other and they were just at a point where they didn't have that much in common. Uh, the elder one liked football, the younger one liked dinosaurs. The elder one used to get annoyed with the fact that dinosaurs were trying to eat all his things. The <laughs> younger one got annoyed with the fact that he kept getting footballs kicked at him and that sort of thing. And then suddenly Star Wars became this thing that they bonded over. And I, I love Star Wars. I'm a real Star Wars fan. And so for me, it was great. And, and I've talked before in my podcast about how I was brought up in an atheist household. My mum had been a Catholic, but I was brought up in a really devoutly atheist, totally belief-free household. Mm. And I think, you know, for a lot of us who are in that position, I think Star Wars fulfills almost a kind of quasi-religious <laughs> purpose in our lives, you know. And um And actually, I did feel like I was passing down this folklore to my kids. And I felt like, you know, it was quite a lovely thing to do with them, actually, and to sort of teach them about Star Wars. And then it was interesting to see the things that they connected with different to me. Like, you know, I was like, I liked Han Solo. They liked the clones. They liked, you know, Jar Jar Binks, <laughs> you know, all these things from the prequels, you know. Um, yeah. So we just really bonded over it. But then this Lego Star Wars Death Star became this kind of object of lust, <laughs> um, you know, it's ridiculously expensive. I think, I think, you know, there's different versions of it, but I think the cheapest one's about £400. It's insane, you know. Like, <sighs> and, you know, they would look at it and, you know, they had this book, this Lego Choose Your Own Adventure book, where, and, and there was a picture of it, and, and we were kind of go like, wow, this is incredible. It's like the, you know, the <laughs> ultimate toy, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, there was a point, you know, I, I, I started making a bit more money recently when I did um, my play and things like that. And suddenly you get to a point where, you know, you go from worrying about money to feeling a bit more comfortable. And, you know, at, at the back of my head, I was always like, oh, you know, I'm, one of these days I'm going to buy them a Lego Star Wars Death Star. That'll be the thing. It'll be a real symbol of, you know, like I've arrived and I can, <laughs> I can look after my kids. It's like, you know, you hear the footballers about, I bought my mum a house. I'd be like, I bought my kids a Lego Star Wars Death Star. And then, and then when, when it came to the point that I could sort of afford to do it, I thought like, I, I don't think this is the right thing to do. I, I don't think that this is, I don't think this would bring happiness. You know, I think that they love their Lego. They love the imaginative journeys they go on building Lego. They build their own versions of the Death Star with the Lego they've got. I think that actually buying this massive great thing and sort of, you know, this thing where you've got all of the bits of the Death Star all there for you and you don't have to use your imagination because it's there for you actually isn't the right thing probably. And it's a an, it's crazy, ridiculous, obscene amount of money to spend on a toy as well. So I didn't do it and I don't think I will. And, um, and it will remain this kind of romantic ideal for all of us, but it will be a symbol <laughs> of um, the way we all bonded over Star Wars. And I guess the importance of being able to share stories and... You know, the the idea of parents passing stories on to kids and then kids feeding the stories back and the, the kind of the way you can build stories across generations. So it's a, a lovely, it's a sort of just thinking of that Lego Star Wars Death Star is all it takes. I don't have to have a real one. I can think of it and it will make me smile. Yeah. Well, I can hear a round of applause ringing out around the nation. I think it's a fantastic thing to have made that decision because it's a very difficult decision to make because your children do become obsessed with these things and, and they they so want them. You know, um, I did an, a commercial recently for Nintendo Switch and all of my grandchildren said, did they give you one? And I said, no. no I've done lots <laughs> of commercials. Nobody ever gives you anything. Nintendo Switches are £300. And in the end, I did manage to wangle a couple of games, which was, you know, very generous of them. You know. Oh, OK. First time I've ever got anything. But they'd have been much more likely to get it if you'd been a burglar rather than an actor. Yeah. <laughs> then, then, yeah, yeah, of course I'll get you a few. But no, like, you yeah, know, yeah. You, you, don't, you don't get given anything as an actor, do you? And they, they, even, no. You know, they, 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 they don't even pay you that much anymore, do they? And they, the whole world <laughs> is kind of... There's no such thing as a free lunch in this town anymore, you know? No, sadly. <laughs> now, how did your kids react then to the older Star Wars films? Do they see them as slightly dated? Um, no, they love them, actually. And... Um, 
I think it's really interesting about how kids connect with different things, actually. And I think, you know, people of my generation are quite sniffy about the prequels, you know, the um, Phantom Menace and um, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. And actually, my kids loved the characters from that. They loved the battle droids and the clones. So, um, yeah, you know, each each era takes what it wants from these stories. But I, I do think, I mean, I stand in awe of George Lucas and the world he created because, you know, that, that universe is just incredible, I think. I mean, I, I do mm. think that we look at Shakespeare as a godlike genius. <laughs> I, I, I kind of think that, you know... Don't go there, The cultural impact of Star okay. Wars. You know, I mean, you know, I, I do think in terms of acts of cultural genius, I do think Star Wars is up there. I think, you know, the, and I, I, don't, I don't think it's just George Lucas. I think it's a you know, product of a huge team of people. I think the design of it, mm. I mean, the iconic design of Darth Vader and Stormtroopers, you know, that just hold the whole look of it. I, I, I do think that it is an act of genius. And I think, you know, it's spawned so much. And like the Mandalorian now is absolutely, you know, brilliant, incredible, mm. one of the best TV programs I've watched. So I, I look upon that and I do... I admire that immensely as somebody who creates imaginary worlds and, and you know writes I I do think like oh my god I mean if, if you were even one of these people if you created the costume for Chewbacca or the you know the, mm-hmm. the Stormtrooper helmet I mean you know you just happily retire feeling like you know my work here is done it doesn't get better <laughs> and Star Wars it reflects back on what you were saying before because it is definitely one of those things the first time because everybody remembers seeing it the first time. I remember exactly where I was, and I remember the reaction of several people in the cinema the moment that the words started coming out of space across the screen and going off into the distance. Several people yelped with with excitement. Yeah, and I actually watched uh, that big documentary uh, about it on Disney Plus the other day, and actually seeing how the process of it being made is really interesting and quite inspiring as well, because... You know, it, it seems like almost most of the people involved in it thought it was going to be rubbish, you know, and they just didn't <laughs> buy into it at all. They thought it was going to be some crap kids movie. Nobody acting in it had any sense of what the special effects were going to be like. So everyone was a bit dismissive of it. And George Lucas was being looked upon as this kind of um, upstart young guy who came over to Britain and was, you know, just kind of disapproved of by the camera people. And, you know, everyone thought like, oh, this is, what is this? It's, you know, why are we doing this? And it was all in his head, you know, and it got to the point where he had to kind of go to the model makers, the special effects people, and he had to be there all the time, you know, forcing his vision onto this thing, making sure he got what he wanted. And he was having chest pains, thought he was having a heart attack, you know, <laughs> from anxiety and the pressure. And, and it, you know, I think it's a, it's a good inspiring model that you know if you know what you want if you've got this dream this kind of vision and you can force it through you can power it through then then you know I mean what what a thing to kind of have that and to make that happen and to create this world for the sheer force of your personality you must have had that to an extent when you started pitching the idea of a documentary but also people can act out the scenes about ghosts and poltergeists and things and you must have people must have said Danny no that's not going to work well, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think certainly it must have felt like a risk. I mean, I was really lucky to have this this brilliant commissioner at the BBC, Rianne Roberts, who took that risk and, and has really backed us and has been so supportive. Um, I definitely felt a sense of, for the first time in my life, making this thing that really felt like it directly came from my personality that I desperately cared about. It was the thing mm. that I wanted to listen to. I felt prior to that point I'd been hitting targets, I'd been making the thing I felt I should make for a certain audience, you know, like, you know, can you tick this box on, you know, can you hit the kind of six o'clock on Radio 4 market mm-hmm. or the BBC One Saturday night market or whatever, you know, like you you were constantly kind of trying to hit some sort of thing that had been imposed on you. And with this, I just like, you know, this is a, a, a subject that I am obsessed by, that I've cared about my entire life. It's a story that I just think is incredible. And, you know, this is Battersea Poltergeist. And, um, mm. And I just, it was a labour of love and I lived and breathed it and I did it how I wanted to do it. And there were points where I said, no, I'm not going to do it like that. And you just got to trust me, you know, and it was great. And it was liberating. And I think it was, it felt massively empowering. And, you know, clearly there are kind of really high stakes there because if it goes wrong and it's no good, then it's all on you and you've kind of really screwed up royally, you know, but um, mm-hmm. I mean, it felt great. But the next step clearly is um, the pop music world where yeah, you've got to go in there yeah, and say, you don't need to be able to sing, you know, Ian Drury. 
It's true. It's true. I mean, all I need is a vocoder. If I go mm. the kind of kind of um, vocoder route, I, I could, I could really, <laughs> really clean up. Um, I look forward to future interviews where you say, "Yeah, people used to talk to me about my number eleven, but let's talk about my five number ones." <laughs> but um, my next object for the the time capsule sort of fits in with that whole ghostly world and this sort of change in my life. Um, right, and it's, yeah, great. I'm, I'm, I'm holding it right now. Actually, um, it's it's a bloody hell Ken mug. <laughs> and uh, and this might I hope this doesn't feel like sort of shameless merchandising because you know these are things that we've made ourselves. But this this is for me that this captures the surprising, wonderful, and kind of dreamlike thing that happened to me over the last couple of years, really, which is that the ghosts have been good to me, and that I've hmm. spent my entire life being really interested in ghosts, like obsessed with ghosts, really. And um, and for me, it comes from some deeply rooted places, like a, a real profound fear of death. You know, I really hate the idea of death, really frightened of the idea of death. And and also this kind of desire for magic. I really crave the idea that there is something more out there. And all of that kind of stuff feeds into my interest. But I sort of feel like I, I've been lucky enough to hit a moment where the thing that I'm obsessed by and interested in seems to be reflected in greater society. Like There, there is this kind of resurgent interest in the paranormal that you can see, you know, on TV, you can see in the kind of programs that are being commissioned on Netflix, you know, the kind of lots of horror, you know, but I think you can also just tangibly feel it like when you talk to people for all sorts of reasons, you know, you can pick out the kind of existential crisis we're in of COVID and climate change and war and all these sort of things that make us think Mm -hmm. about our mortality more. But, you know, there's there's lots of things, I think, that feed into it. But we are interested in ghosts. And I I feel very lucky to have hit a moment where the thing that you you care about, other people care about. And and I've I've gone on this amazing journey, really. You know, I made that podcast, The Battersea Poltergeist, in my shed where I'm talking to you now, in the bottom of my garden in Walthamstow, and had this mad sort of life-changing thing of suddenly Hollywood producers calling up and wanting to buy the rights to it and <laughs> and suddenly having conversations with Americans by Zoom and pitching to all these American broadcasters for the TV version and then making Uncanny. And the thing that happened with Uncanny, which was as exciting and, and probably the thing that I'm proudest of, really, was seeing this community build around it and this social media kind of online community of people who were completely on two ends of the spectrum, like some of them believing in ghosts and some of them absolutely refusing to believe ghosts exist, but watching all these people get on and enjoy it in their own way. That is the joy of it, though, Danny. The joy, without a doubt, is the fact that you have both sides and they listen to each other. I know, and and I think that's what people respond to because that's so rare, That you know, and, and, Mm. you know, listening is, is the thing that we're missing. And I think, like, I would say that pretty much all of the problems... Or I would say that a huge amount of the problems in British society right now are to do with people not feeling listened to. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you look at the anger around certain things, you know, like Brexit obviously being the biggest example, but I think it's because there's, there's huge swathes of people who just felt for a long time they weren't listened to and they got angrier and angrier and angrier. And then, you know, Brexit became something that they could attach their anger to, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and pin a blame on certain things. You know, some people would say the, the wrong things, you know, but... um. Listening is such an underrated quality, but <laughs> so th- this this but this expression "bloody hell Ken" b- became kind of like the, the catchphrase or the kind of the motto for the whole community that built around Uncanny. And it was this line in the first episode where there was a guy called Ken talking about his ghost story, and I said to him at one point a really scary point. I went "bloody hell Ken," and I didn't <laughs> intend it to be any sort of profundity. And I, in fact, I thought about editing it out a lot. I was like, "We don't really need that line, do we?" And then as soon as the show went out. I just saw everybody coming back going, bloody hell can, bloody hell can, bloody hell can on Twitter. And it became this meme. And I think what I came to realise it summed up was the mixture of feelings we feel when dealing with these ghost stories, which is like on one level, just the fear and amazement, the kind of exclamation of surprise, mm. but also this kind of solidarity, you know, like bloody hell can. And it felt like a, it had a lot of that to it. And I felt like it got to the heart of the the respect and the kindness that we give to these people telling their stories. They're all telling us these stories of a moment in their life where they experience something that took them from one reality to another and often linked to extreme fear as well. And it's a life-changing moment for all of them. And you can hear when they're talking about it, just, you know, how profound it was. Mm -hmm. And I I just feel like, you know, 
I mean, this will sound ridiculously kind of um, highfalutin, but I think in a way it's like a metaphor for life. Like, you know, like if we can listen to people who have incredibly different views to us and not necessarily agree with them, but try and understand where it comes from and why mm -hmm. and give them empathy, then I feel like that's, that's a way that tangibly maybe the world will get better. So Bloody Hell Ken became a, a motto that for me summed up a hell of a lot about how I feel about the world. And, and, and it's, it's applied to that world of ghosts, but I think a lot of the lessons that we can learn there, you know, and I don't mean like conscious lessons, sort of didactic stuff about this is the way you should behave in your life. Mm. I think there's just things that we suck up and kind of unconsciously take in that maybe we can then carry into the rest of our lives. I, I think you're absolutely right. The programmes that are made about this subject, usually, historically, have either been astonishingly convinced by it and only ever talk to people who are convinced by it, or people who are doing it because they're sceptics and they laugh at it. So to combine those two and to get them to come to some sort of agreement, I think it is a metaphor for life. I think it really is important that we all do that more in life. I think that it's, it's in the grey area where you find the greatest truths, I think. I think black and white are incredibly loud places to be you know the, the, the sort of those two opposites you can sort of shout and shout about your position but actually when you move out of the extreme black and white sides of the argument you, you kind of enter this gray area where you start to kind of see the views of others and you sort of find that life is is more complex and nuanced than you think and that there aren't these mm -hmm. kind of easy answers to complicated questions I think and and just, I, I just love, I love mystery as well. You know, that, that kind of, you know, if you talk about that grey area being this kind of swirl of fog where you, you're not quite sure what's going to emerge. For me, the ghost stories, the pleasure of it is that mystery and that sense of a, a mystery that keeps on giving, that we may never get those answers, those definitive answers. And actually, you cannot occupy a, a position of absolute certainty on this. And, and no. you know, that's not a bad place to be. No, absolutely. The maybe, yeah, yeah, we'll wait and see, or yeah. who knows. Yeah, it's yeah. quite a good stance to take rather than <laughs> no, you're wrong, or yes, you're right. Yeah, I mean, an, an open mind, and you know, an open mind, mm -hmm. that's, that's what I keep. But at and... the same time, Dan, I think that it's also a, a lesson in life, the idea that if you really love something, if in fact the thing that you do is based on that, you will find other people who are like-minded, who are interested in what you're doing. I think that if you look at all the great successful performers and artists, you're talking about George Lucas, but if you look at Bowie and all those things, they were heavily ridiculed early on. But now we look on them as being geniuses. I'm not saying you are. <laughs> That's very kind, but I, I will. But um, no, um, I, I, um, I, I think that, you know, people sometimes say to me, what would be your tips for writing something or creating something? And I, I do think that probably over and above anything else, I would say, make it personal, make it something that comes from you and, and write from your own experiences and from the heart, I think. And if you really care about something, then I think, People respond to that. They like that. They like that sense of something that, you know, they can just see that you really bloody care about. And, um, mm. you know, in, in the old days when I used to make documentaries for radio, I'd, I'd be told, like, make a documentary about this. Or, you know, I mean, I, I'd choose something that interested me. I was like, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I'll make a documentary about that. But it was just like kind of randomly plucked things, really, you know. And, and so you're just then you're just telling somebody about something. You know, you've learned more about something and then you tell <laughs> people about it. But now I feel like I'm, I'm on this kind of personal journey, this quest where, you know, even if I wasn't making these programmes, I'd still be wanting to go and talk to these people and, and make these programmes because I burningly want to know about these things and I'm interested in it. And so I think, you know, people respond to that because, you know, if, if you care, they'll care, you know, like, I mean, you, mm -hmm. know, it, you know, enthusiasm is infectious, isn't it? And I love listening mm. to a show where I just feel like, oh yeah, God, I'm with this person. And, you know, you're bonding with the, <laughs> the host of the podcast because, you know, you, you, um, you get drawn along by them. Yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's the difference. If you, if you had to sort of cite a difference between podcasting and radio, I, I do think that it is about that personality of the journey that the, um, you know, we connect with the hosts of the podcasts we like. And and I think that a podcast allows you to join a little club, I think, you know, and, and particularly that's something that I've loved the idea of, that you become that little group of people. And, and I, I think a podcast is a, is a group endeavour, I think, you know. That yes, it's lovely, isn't it? The, the listeners contribute. It's a, it's a conversation. It's a two-way thing, I think. Absolutely. 
that's why those social media connections are really great because people make comments about it and and in fact remind you of things that you hadn't really noticed yourself yeah. that are going on in it and oh, you yeah, become totally, more totally. aware of what it is oh god that's that so true and i think you sort of learn about what you're doing by seeing how people respond to it and we do these listen alongs where on Twitter, everybody presses play at the same moment and listens to an episode together in this kind of glorious <laughs> act of unison all around the world. And I, I, you know, watching people respond in real time on Twitter to your thing is brilliant. I would recommend that to anybody creating anything because you never wow. have that anywhere else in anything you do. Like you get reviews, you get critics commenting on stuff and whatever. But to, to see real listeners responding in real time to your program and what works for them. It's amazing. I mean, you know, you hear about the, that kind of audience testing they do in Hollywood where people hold a buzzer and they sort of, you know, I think they, mm. they or I don't know, it's sort of dial, they sort of turn the dial up when they like certain moments in the program and mm. turn it down. And, so, and you know, that, that's, that's kind of one way of doing it. But actually people writing stuff, people responding in written form to certain moments going, that, that was incredible, that was great. Like, what the hell's going on here? Like, this has jumped the shark. You know, it's great. You learn so much. Fantastic. Now, that is a moment of genius. That is brilliant. That's a fantastic idea. I'm gonna. That's a real bloody hell, Ken. That's a great moment. Fantastic. I'm going to put that mug into the time capsule. So that's your fourth item. I know. So we have one left, which is one you want to reject from your life, or you'd rather forget. Uh, oh, I see. Well, okay. I mean, so this is a rejection, but um, but I won't ever forget it. Um, okay. It's uh, it's salt lacrets. Now, do you know what salt lacrets is? No, I don't. What is it? Salty licorice. And uh. <laughs> it is massively. Is this through your wife? Yeah, you, it's massively this. popular in mm-hmm. Sweden, in all of Scandinavia, in fact, to the point where they have salty licorice ice cream, salty licorice vodka, <laughs> all sorts. Uh, almost going to say salty licorice toothpaste, but I don't know if it's quite gone that far. But, but they love salty licorice. And oh, God, I hate it. I, I, would, I would never <laughs> want to eat salty licorice. But so this is this is an object that I'm rejecting on taste grounds in, in that it would make me feel physically sick to eat salty licorice. But it's also an object that is hugely imbued with love here because this is all about my wife, who is Swedish and who I met. I, I, I'm trying to think if I've ever told this before, but basically um, I met her when I was doing a gig in a pub in Camden. I was in the Etc. Theatre in Camden and I was doing an Edinburgh preview show, warming up for an Edinburgh show I was doing, and I just looked out into the audience and I saw this beautiful woman, this kind of vision of loveliness, (laughs) and our eyes locked on and I I could sort of feel this energy, this charge between the two of us. And she says now that she felt the same too. Um, And if if we were speaking Swedish, we'd say it was Scharlek vid första ögenkastet, which means uh, love at first eye-chucking. And, um, and and so it was like, it was an amazing moment. And then afterwards we got talking and then, you know, and that was it. And basically from that point on, we spent every day of our lives together, essentially. So if anybody doesn't believe that love at first sight is possible, this, this is categorical proof that it is. And so then through her, I was introduced to the mysteries of Sweden. And I've talked about being obsessed by ghosts, but actually, you know, Sweden is another thing that has kind of quite obsessed me in, the, the, you know, the years since I met Eva and... Um, and I, you know, I, I think Sweden is such an interesting place to look at. And I think, you know, there's lots of similarities between Brits and Swedes, but at the same time, there's this kind of exotic difference which draws us in. And, and you know, it's one of the reasons why I think we're fascinated by like Nordic noir crime series and things like that. And I think we often, particularly politicians, often look at Sweden and see it as this kind of model of society, of how society can run and function better. And certainly, you know, I think there's lots of aspects of Sweden where they've really got it cracked. But anyway, you know, I, I fell in love with my wife. I, you know, to some degree, I sort of fell in love with Sweden as well. And my kids are now half Swedish. So, you know, salty licorice is, is one uh, <laughs> way of something, something like that. I mean, it's weird. I mean, I, I know it's a negative. It's going in the time capsule as a negative. But I sort of feel like, I don't know, if you've got a time capsule, you don't want to put something truly negative in, do you? You want to have something that you still... I mean, you know, and I did think about this. I thought long and hard beforehand, actually, before doing this interview about, you know, should I put my wife and kids in the time capsule as a... As a not as a negative, by the way, but as a positive <laughs> thing, you know. And then I thought, no, that's quite cruel. And it sort of had a sort of sense of what they used to do in, like, ancient Egypt, where they would bury the pharaoh's wife and servants in the in in the uh, pyramid with him you know and i felt you know that's probably 
not the right move. So salty licorice is going in there as as um, as a negative that becomes a positive and, and reminds me of my deliciously brilliant and lovely um, and and Swedish wife and family. Beautiful. I've tried salty licorice and I quite like it. I'm oh, afraid. Well, there you go. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I'm happy to go to Sweden and eat as much as you like. Well, there you go. And I, I've just realised actually that it's not the only Swedish thing in this time capsule because Roxette are Swedish. And um, oh, right, of course they are. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, my wife and I went to see them at Wembley Arena at one point, like kind of a few years back, you know, when they were doing one of their reunion tours. And, and really sadly, Marie Fredriksson from Roxette has passed away now. But, um, you know, they are another great Swedish invention that um, has gone mm. out into the world. And in fact, actually, look, I, I've just been talking about the um, whole idea of music being on tap whenever. Spotify is a Swedish invention as well. And, you know, like the Swedes are incredible inventors, like everything from ball bearings and the, uh, the, the seat belt and dynamite. Alfred Nobel, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize, he invented dynamite. Mm-hmm. The reason that there's a Nobel Peace Prize is because he felt guilty about inventing dynamite and wanted to kind of pay it back, you know, so he created the Peace Prize. Yeah. And they are the world's third biggest exporter of music. You know, this really? relatively small country of, say, like 10 million people, they've had this incredible impact on the musical world, you know, and like so many pop songs you can think of were written by Swedes, you know, Katy Perry, I Kissed a Girl, I Like It, Britney Spears, uh, Hit Me Baby One More Time, all these amazing pop songs out there. And then, you know, if you ever watch Eurovision, they're all written by Swedes. You know, I mean, Swedes are prolific <laughs> musically, but prolific in all sorts of ways. So um, there's got to be a strong Swedish flavour in this time capsule. I don't blame you. I've met your wife. She's gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I could have met somebody from anywhere in the world, really, and it just happened to be Sweden. And it happened to be somewhere that I found really fascinating and lovely and beautiful. So I feel, I feel quite lucky on that point of view. And I guess, like, if I had to boil my interest down to two things, like, ghosts and Sweden are pretty much it, you know. Like, I, I wrote this Radio 4 series about uh, Sweden called The Cold Swedish Winter, which was all about a guy moving mm. to Sweden. It was basically this kind of love letter to my wife, love letter to Sweden. And, um, you know, I don't know, it's interesting. It's, it's good to be interested in stuff, isn't it? To find something that you're interested in. Yeah. And, and just to be able to kind of talk about it, write about it. There's a lot to be said for a hobby, you know. Like, I, I don't do needlework, I don't play the piano, I don't play squash, I don't whatever, but I, I, I wax lyrical about ghosts in Sweden and that, those have become <laughs> kind of my work and my hobby, I guess, you know. But it's why I never get bored doing this podcast because people are talking to me about things they're passionate about and you cannot help but be enthused by it. I think um, apathy is is the worst thing in the world, isn't it? Like if you, if you sort of <laughs> give up being interested in stuff, then that's a pretty horrible thing, you know. And um, so long may we all be interested in stuff and long may we sort of champion our kids and uh you know anybody in our life being interested in stuff let's let's just kind of you know keep being as interested in (laughs) interesting stuff as we possibly can be for as long as possible (laughs) thank you professor that's lovely (laughs) well that's gorgeous i shall put the salt licorice into the time capsule and we will bury that and you can forget it and therefore sweden suddenly becomes the most perfect place because it's without it (laughs) a fox will dig it up though it will be found Oh, Danny, thanks for talking to me. It's been really lovely to see you again. No, an absolute pleasure. A pleasure. Thank you, Mike. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Danny Robbins. Thanks for listening. I'm sorry if you expected this episode to be full of ghostly tales and things that go bump in the night, but you can always listen to the brilliantly disturbing things that Danny makes. Or if you happen to be in London's West End, pop along and see 222. It'll make you jump out of your seat several times. Right, that's the end of the podcast, really, but um, I do usually ramble on at this point. You can turn off if you like, but for those very few quite weird people who like to listen to me ramble on, here we go. I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to rate or review it so that you can tell others it's worth a listen. Do subscribe, of course. You can listen to the episodes at your leisure, but they will be there when you want them. And do follow me and my time capsule on the social media outlets, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. I'm not very good at Instagram yet, but I'm getting better. So it should become more fun as we go along together. Thank you.
If you like the theme tune to My Time Capsule, written by Pass the Peas Music, great name, it's available for your listening pleasure on the Swedish Invention Spotify. And if you like blowing things up, then Dynam... No, that's probably not a good idea. Bloody Swedes and their inventions. This cast-off production was produced by John Fenton Stevens for Acast. Happy Halloween, or Happy Christmas, slash Easter, slash birthday, depending on when you get to listen to this episode. In fact, Halloween is also my wife's birthday. So, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Mandy, happy birthday to you. Right, I'll leave you with the top ten jokes for Halloween, according to the internet, which, as we know, is never wrong. Number ten, what do ghosts like? Strawberries. How do French skeletons say hello? Bonjour. How do you fix a broken pumpkin? A pumpkin patch. (laughs) I've got to keep going, come on. What is a vampire's favourite fruit? A nectarine. And they helpfully put the word neck in capital letters, in case I miss the gag. (laughs) Thank you very much. Right, number five. What do ghosts use to wash their hair? Shampoo. Why didn't the ghost dance at the Halloween party? She had no body to dance with. Again, in capital letters, in case I'm completely fucking stupid. What do you call a witch who lives at the beach? A sand witch. Well, I fucking don't. How many monsters are good at math? Ah, ah, right, it's an American website. None, unless you count Dracula. Oh, my God. What kind of pants do ghosts wear? Boo jeans. Boo jeans? Boo boo bloody jeans? Are we supposed to think of blue jeans out of boo? What sort of shit is this? And finally, here we are with the real cracker. What do you call a wolf that knows what's going on? A werewolf. Yep, depressing, isn't it? No wonder Halloween's such a hoot. Goodbye. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.